Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Monday. I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Got a great Monday show for you. One of Weldon and I's final Sunday podcast extravaganzas wrapping up the college football season weekend that was. Got college football playoff. Some uh, Ole Miss Sugar Bowl stuff, and then, of course, Lane Kiffin's extension, where Jeff Lebby may go from here. A lot of different stuff. It was honestly one of the busier shows we had in terms of different topics to talk about, which is ironic, considering it's the first Sunday show we've done in which Ole Miss had not played a football game the week before. But a great conversation. We got into pretty much all the relevant topics football-wise. Uh, Ole Miss got a big win over basketball, in, uh, or over Memphis in basketball, rather, this weekend. I'm going to do something on the Tuesday, Wednesday-ish podcast with that. Didn't Just didn't have time to get to it in this show, but uh, a big win for Ole Miss over a uh, really poorly coached Memphis team over the weekend. But hey, the Rebels played well, played well on the defensive end, but we'll get to that. I'll write about it in the newsletter on Monday, and then uh, we'll hit that a little bit later in the week. But anyway, we got uh, lots of good stuff, football stuff to get to, coaching carousel, silliness, the Miami debacle, all of it. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, buckle up. But before we get to that, I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. The world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox, matrix interval, and advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the industry. 6-0 and day in college basketball yesterday. Skybox is also owning the NFL uh, killing it in college football as we come down the stretch. You need to check these guys out. College basketball, as that kind of gets heating up, is by far their best model. Those are Skybox words, not mine. But uh, pretty much just printing money. And I guarantee you did not go 6-0 and in college basketball yesterday. So you need to check these guys out. They're going to consistently lead you to profit more so than your own brain. You don't want to be paying the man on Sunday nights, Monday mornings. Already got the scaries waiting on that text. You need to be texting him asking where your, uh, your money for next weekend uh, is coming from. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. They'll have a picks package to fit your price range with it's month long, season long. I'd recommend just going the year long all sports pass for Skybox. But if you're looking for something a little more specific, something to fit uh, fit your monthly budget, they're going to have something to fit your price range. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Absolutely the best in the industry. Use the promo code RIPPY and get 20% off any purchase podcast also brought to you by lb's university avenue across from kroger go see greg if you're a rippy right subscriber that's rippyrights.substack.com put in your email you get a free newsletter from me three to five times a week and discounted meats right now it's a 16 ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a five dollar pack of sausage just go show greg proof of subscription and you're all set then go check out what else he has at the store you're going to find all kinds of favorites lane train special bacon wrap filet fresh seafood sausages crab stuff, mushrooms. There's all kinds of delicious stuff there to throw on the grill. Greg wants to make your grilling experience great. And Oxford is so lucky to have a place like LB's. It is absolutely the best place in Mississippi to get meat. Go check him out. Tell him we sent you LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. And finally, the podcast brought to you by Manscaped. That's right, Manscaped. You need to join the over 2 million men that trust Manscaped, the ultimate leader in men's grooming. Precision tools for your jewels. Check out the Lawnmower 4.0 model. Nice little LED light on that thing portable charger. Manscaped is leading the industry in men's grooming, making sure that you're nice and kept down there. I heard the 70s were a wild time, but uh, Skybox is, excuse me, Manscaped is here to make sure that is a thing of the past. I don't think Skybox is in that industry yet. I'll look to see if they've diversified. 
But uh, check them out, manscaped.com. They've got all kinds of different grooming tools, uh, different accessories to go with it. Use the promo code MPW and get 20% off any purchase. Check them out, manscaped.com. All right, here's a great conversation with Walden. Uh, lots of stuff to cover. Buckle up. All right, we now welcome on former Ole Miss recruiting specialist Weldon Rodenberg for our end of the regular-ish season recap, conference championship week. Ole Miss did not have a game this week. It's weird. It, I'm not sure we've ever had more topics to get to out of all the Sunday shows we've been doing this, and it comes uh, the first podcast we have where Ole Miss has not actually played a football game that week. But uh, a lot of stuff to get into. Kiffin extension, what Jeff Levy's future is. We'll hit some uh, – Sugar Bowl, college football playoff, whatever the hell is going down in Miami. We uh we got a busy, busy day. What's up, man? Oh, uh, not too much. Yeah, there is a there's a lot going on, and it's weird because Ole Miss has not played a game. But that's kind of where this whole college football thing has gone. So not a big deal though. Yeah, it really is. It's it's the you know, you like you get into the season and that's an enjoyable part because it's very straightforward, right? We watch the games, we talk about it, and it's it's you kind of know exactly what you're going to discuss after watching the games every week. And then you get to the end of the year and things happen so fast. I mean, the last time you and I talked, you mentioned, congrats to you, by the way, uh, that you're like, I think that might be Brian Kelly just sitting right there for LSU. And then literally I drop it the next morning. And I think that night it was like, Oh, Brian Kelly's going to be the head next head coach LSU. It's, it's, it's insane how fast all of this develops and like the news cycle, and I think this is kind of the epitome of it, just because you're at the end of the year, you've got transfers, you got coaching season, and you've got the playoff. It's a uh, it's a wild time in college football. It is, and the, you know, the coaching carousel has kind of become what the NBA uh, off season is, where you know everyone's waiting for Woj to announce say, some crazy deal or some crazy trade, and it seems like it's gotten way more ramped up than it has been in the past. But that usually happens when you have two or three pretty big jobs open up the, the kind of waterfall uh, the trickle down effect hits everybody from coordinators to head coaches to G five power five doesn't matter. So a lot's going on. Um, It's, it's fun. It's probably stressful being in it, but it's fun uh, following it. Yeah. No kidding. You mentioned the big jobs opening up and the trickle down effect four opened up. Like you, you mentioned like you get kind of a crazy, crazier coaching carousel season on the years. Like, when you have a couple blue blood jobs open up and this one was like the coaching carousel of all coaching carousels. Because if you think about this, they had LSU, Florida, Oklahoma, USC and Notre Dame open up. And I don't know, I've just collected you out there listening, how, like what regard you hold the Miami job in, but it still has a relevant place in college football. Well, they're about to take, yeah, absolutely. Like it's, it's just insane. And then if that happens, like if that goes the where do we think it's going to go? You're going to have Oregon open too. So like, it's almost like a, not even a, it's not even like a straight that like linear waterfall effect because this one's been unique in the sense that big job openings have now led to more big job openings coming up. But USC led to Oklahoma being open. LSU led to Notre Dame being open. And now you're about to see Miami may possibly lead to Oregon being open, which is something we haven't seen in some time. Normally it's kind of like, okay, you pick off the next tier schools and so on and so down. This one is like almost flown level or like in reverse. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of weird, but I think the, uh, the options of group of five coaches that are fully qualified to make that jump was just pretty low this year. Um, whether point. that's whether that's right or not, um, the one guy that everyone talked about, or two, I guess technically, were Fickle and Napier. Fickle didn't go anywhere because his team's in the playoff, 
And then Napier uh, was, you know, Florida had an opening for four days until he was hired. I mean, they knew what was going on there. And the rest was, I guess, seeing that, not wanting to take the risk on the the guy without head coaching experience. So all the big boys kind of threw out all their big money and made people kind of change their minds and do things they probably never even thought they were considering doing. And people have called it bad for the sport. And I don't want to say it's a good thing because I don't necessarily believe that, but it's definitely not a bad thing. And I think especially I get just considering Brian Kelly going to LSU. I mean, he was at Notre Dame for 12 years, the way this sport works and really all sports, he just don't stay in the same place for 10 plus years anymore. You know, he's 60 years old, probably was like, you know, I'm about to make a lot more money and have a new set of challenges. I really do believe it. Like, I don't think there was some like crazy discourse there at Notre Dame. He was just like, I want to go try something different. And I'm, yeah, I have the opportunity to make a shit ton of money and do it. Um, Lincoln's is a little bit more bizarre because he's like 38 years old leaving. But even then, you know, he did his thing in Oklahoma. Maybe he was like, I want to do something else and make a lot of money. <laughs> it sounds like he didn't think they were ready to enter the SEC. That was a big part of it as well. He looked at the writing on the wall, and you mentioned a fresh start. It's a similar th- way of thinking, I think, is Kelly's yeah. just for different reasons. And people are like, this whole USC isn't a good job thing is, is insane. I don't know if anyone watched his opening press conference. I didn't listen to a word he said. All I looked at was the background. <laughs> <laughs> it was beautiful. 72 degrees. I mean, it just looked amazing. And the money, he's getting a, sh- a ton of money. Um, some looks like they have more support uh, administratively than they've had there in a long time. They've had some really bad ADs. And the Cincinnati guy seems to have, seems to be pretty bright. I mean, it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. And if he wasn't ready to go to the SEC and kind of have his reputation tarnished for his eventual NFL gig, uh, going to USC and building that up makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it really does. And we had Antonio Morales on the Friday podcast, covers USC for the Athletic. He used to cover Ole Miss a couple of years ago. And we were just talking about how it's it's weird. We, Antonio and I, when he left out there, we would always joke when they had Clay Helton and Ole Miss had Matt Luke. USC and Ole Miss are a lot similar in how they operate currently, not like all time then like people want to lead on. They both had an interim coach that the fan base wasn't fully sold on. It was hired by kind of the, uh, the you, I think he described it as like a country club mentality. It was kind of like the old guard at USC, just wanting one of their guys. And, you know, Ole Miss kind of had the same deal in the way Matt Luke was hired and there was fan apathy, you know, across the board. I mean, USC with the, some of the last couple of years of Helton, the Coliseum shots were just embarrassing. Um, it really wasn't that different than the COVID year in a lot of ways. No, not at all. It was but awful. Think- and so, but he, the other part of it, to add on to what you're talking about, the recruiting aspect of it too, USC fell because after Carroll left, they had a couple, and it wasn't immediate. It, it's not a linear trajectory, but you can see a correlation in uh, LA kids leaving the state, uh, particularly to go out uh, East, like SEC, Big Ten, wherever. And that kind of falling in line with USC falling off. Like the, Carroll really seemed to kind of put a fence around LA and the state of California. And once he left, it was kind of a free for all and they never got a firm handle back on it. And then you had Helton that had a couple of years of misses and it just became a disaster. I think Lincoln Riley will have much more of a Pete Carroll um, success in that recruiting California kids. And I think that's good enough to contend for championships out there. It absolutely is. Plus just the, the lack of real competition, especially in the South. I mean, 
you have to beat Utah, and you know how much we both love Utah now. We do. So that was a big I'm, day for us Friday. <laughs> a huge day. First ever Pac-12 championship for the Utes. Um, but that's really the team you have to go through. I mean, Arizona State, who knows what they're going to be like. They're, they'll be competitive, but they've got their own issues. Arizona's a dumpster fire. Colorado's terrible. UCLA is just average. I mean, it's just not a difficult division. You really got to worry about Oregon. Well, they just lost their head coach. Hypothetically, it hasn't happened yet, but it sure seems like it's going to. Um, and the whole issue with USC is just not being able to keep the elite players in, from L.A., from North California, like, like you said, but mainly the quarterbacks. You know, you got guys like C.J. Stroud and Matt Corral, um, Bryce Young specifically because he was committed to USC. I mean, those guys aren't leaving. I mean, Lincoln already has like literally four or five five stars from Los Angeles committed within two days he was hired. So that, that's going to stay the same. And it's a really, really good job. And like, like I said, just look at the background of this press conference. I mean, I was out there for the Rose Bowl. It is hard to leave. <laughs> it is an amazing, amazing place. So I don't blame them. We've talked about that before. When I went out to Newport this summer, like that was the second or third time I've been out there. It doesn't even seem like real life. Like it's almost like a different reality. And just literally because the weather's perfect and all that. It's it, it really is interesting. And the last part about the recruiting piece, too, you're right, it's spot on with the quarterbacks. And one of the things Antonio pointed out that I didn't know because obviously I don't follow USC that closely was it was quarterbacks and it was also the upper tier offensive linemen have all started going to Oregon from that area and kind of around California. And look, if you're not recruiting quarterbacks, you're not recruiting the elite offensive linemen in your state. I mean, shit, aside from defensive linemen, you're like those are the that's the trifecta. Like when you're recruiting, that seems like the best place to start to be competitive and you're not doing two of the three. That's that's tough to succeed. Before um, so before we get to the Kiffin aspect of this, I do want to get your thoughts on Brian Kelly, just because we were already uh we we talked about it. You hinted at it on Sunday. We talked about it um a lot throughout the week. Uh sent, we sent talked about the fake accent, a couple other deals. Um yeah. What do, like I think he can win games there, but I'll open it up to you first. What do you think this fit is? As someone who grew up around LSU, grew up going to games following the LSU program, what uh, what was your thoughts on this hire? Um, I, I think he's a really, really, really good football coach. I think that's like an undeniable fact. I mean, you just look at their record from the past six years, and I really don't think people understand how hard it is to recruit and win at Notre Dame in this day and age compared to like, you know, their glory days. Um, Notre Dame recruits a very specific kind of kid. And you hear that a lot. Like, you know, this coach recruits a specific, specific kind of kid, but Notre Dame is different. They have like real academic restrictions and they don't really let up. Um, it's, it's bizarre. You know, the players like live with regular students. They're just a lot of administrative and background things to Notre Dame that make it a very unique and uh, a pretty difficult place to sustain success because you just can't get those elite kids from the South and whatnot. Um, I think he's going to do really well at LSU. I don't think it's a great fit. Um, it, he has never been in the South, never coached in the South, never been. He has recruited Louisiana, had a few, some success with a few pretty good players, but he, he's going to have to figure out the staff thing. I think there, there's a weird deal going on. I mean, he just let Tommy Moffitt go, even though I think Moffitt was probably ready to go. Um, he hasn't filled out his staff yet, uh, which is weird. He's been on the job for like five days, and like there's no movement. The guys from Notre Dame, none of them came with him, which 
I don't necessarily think is as big of a deal as some people do, but it's something when you look at Lincoln and he brought like five guys to USC on the first day. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a correlation because Marcus Freeman got the head coaching job and Tommy Reese played quarterback at Notre Dame is now getting paid a lot of money to the OC, but he's going to have to make some coordinator hires going to have to get some guys in state just lost a receivers coach in Nebraska so things are going to have to come together for him. Um, and though I don't think he is the best fit in Louisiana, I think they have got pretty good leadership and he is a bona fide good football coach. So I think it'll be interesting, but I think it'll be a good hire. I, I found it fascinating too. And, you know, everyone got caught up in the fake Southern accent, which is just a lose-lose proposition. If like, if you're not Southern trying to fake that, I even get surprised when people in movies get it correctly. That's just the success rate on that move to, uh, I guess, ingratiate yourself. That, that, that tactic is, is you're almost batting zero. Like it, it's, it's incredibly hard to pull off. It was funny. I didn't, I didn't think it was a serious issue. Like some tried to point it out to me. But no, it, it's not a big not, deal. Yeah, it's fine. He's a fascinating character, though, because it was interesting kind of um, seeing the way the Notre Dame side reacted when he left. No one seemed shocked. Um, the AD even admitted as much on the record. Um, it, the assistant coaches, I don't know exactly whether they were stunned or not. I don't know with them staying necessarily, particularly the two coordinators. As you mentioned, one of them got offered the head coaching job. Tommy Reese is an alum, played quarterback there. I don't know what that says about like what they thought about him leaving. But you also didn't get any of the, you know, the, the Gen Z day and age we live in where kids are posting cryptic uh, tweets about how they were sharked or heartbroken or shit like that. Like, I didn't see a ton of that. Maybe I wasn't looking hard enough. And, like, then you had kind of the, the way he left part of it, which I don't really understand, like, what we really want in guys leaving. There's not a good way to do this. Like, the entire – when you're – the entire, like, job quoting process operates in secrecy. There's no, like, straightforward way – to tell someone that you're leaving, but like we as consumers get mad about it, like no matter how it shakes out, like I, people get mad about the way he left. And yes, there are more tasteful ways than others, but like, does the right way exist? I don't know. I don't think it does. And so there was this weird stretch for like two days that anyone who wanted their pound of flesh about Brian Kelly or to like resurface some old story, just kind of got it. I found that bizarre. And I don't know if that necessarily says much about Kelly, but I guess my overall analysis on it is he seems like a guy who, Players, I'm sure they like to some degree, but that guy that's like, they, there seemed to be an understanding that he was always at the end of the day, kind of going to look out for Brian Kelly above all else. And he's not alone in the industry in that regard. But like, to me, that was kind of the general consensus. It's like that one friend we always have. We always, all of us has, everyone has a friend in a group where like, you all like him. He gets along great with everybody, but it's just kind of understood if, I don't know, you're on a boat and it sinks. That guy's putting the life vest on himself. And, yeah. <laughs> and you can, everyone else can kind of piss off. And it's just accepted as the way they are. He strikes me as that guy, if to use a terrible analogy. But I don't know. It'll be fascinating. What do you think it comes down to? Recruiting? Like, he hasn't had to do the battles yet, it doesn't seem no, like. No, no, no. Yeah, the recruiting battle, I mean, it's different. But LSU, you know, he used in his press conference the word, like, alignment, like, 45 times. Um, yeah, what's, but up, what's is, up with that? He was just talking about like how from the president to Woodward to himself to the state, like everyone is rowing in the same direction, you know, which is something that a lot of schools don't have at all. Look at Miami right now. <laughs> you know, nobody knows what the shit is going on down there. Everyone thinks they're in charge and nobody's actually in charge. Whereas at LSU now with with Woodward and them, like everyone knows what's going on. Everyone's 
you know, booster wise, just um, commitment wise, it's all towards football and winning and winning big. Um, but he's going to have to get these coordinator hires right. And he is not going to be able to run a – he's going to have to be pretty innovative on offense. You don't have to do Levy, Lane Kiffin, you know, air raid, like crazy stuff, even though – I mean, that's not what Ole Miss runs, but you know what I mean. Like, you don't have to go completely out of the box. But if he does – if he goes against a guy that runs an offense like, you know, Michigan or Georgia, like, it doesn't matter what you recruit, you, you'll be limiting yourself. So, if he can go get somebody – I know they're looking at Levy, Kendall Bryles, you know, all the guys that come up for every single offensive coordinator job for every single school in the country. <laughs> if he goes get someone that has like a real knack for recruiting in Louisiana that can run a really imp- like impressive, innovative offense, I think he'll do really, really well because from a CEO aspect of running a program, he's shown that everywhere he's been, he's been incredibly successful. But if you don't adapt, you will die. So he'll have to figure that out. Last thing before we get to Ole Miss and uh, Kiffin, if I could make a case that it fails, I think he's a good coach. I think anything like what he's done at Notre Dame, as you mentioned, with the recruiting limitations that, you know, they don't really let up, even if you play you play football, like all of that, I think he's great. I do think he I, think I couldn't agree more about him probably needing to get caught up with the times a little bit on offense. Yeah. Um, doesn't have to be cutting edge like you mentioned, but kind of have something a little more modern because it did seem like it was a little archaic and stale. If I'm making the case that it doesn't work out, he's 60-something years old. He's kind of a fair or unfair, has a reputation of being, one, prickly, and two, like kind of a stick-in-the-mud narc. Again, what you see in public is not even close to always accurate about what a guy actually is. But if it doesn't work out, don't you think the most likely factor is maybe not necessarily being able to deal with everything that comes with being the head coach at LSU, whether that's dealing with everyone kind of having the seat at the t- boosters is what I'm getting at boosters, I got everything you, yeah. that now navigating everything you have to navigate kind of behind the scenes because everything else looks like it's kind of a, a slam dunk, good coach, good evaluator of talent, good developer, good enough CEO of a program. It seems like if it fails, it probably is because, he just had, wasn't used to and was not up to the challenge of managing everything else, if that makes sense. I would say that's pretty fair. Um, now, I have heard that he has started off hot. Like, people really have really liked him. They've had a few, you know, alumni and boosters meetings the past few days, and he's he's been really, really good. But everyone's always really, really good when they start. It, it's when something goes wrong uh, when you start seeing the cracks. Um I think that would be a huge part of his downfall if there was one. I, I think the quarterback position is something at Notre Dame that he has struggled with, I guess you could say. Um, I think Ian Book has was really good for them. And even at that, even he still limited them to some ex- extent. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and he's got a really interesting quarterback room there right now. You know, they've got Max Johnson and Nussmeyer. They have Walker Howard, who is committed and will go there. He's not going anywhere else. So you've got three guys, all that, you know, two guys that have played, one guy that's right now like a top five quarterback in the country coming in. How does he handle that? Is he ready for the transfer transfer portal version of LSU and the SEC? Is he going to run his program that way? Is he just going to dial in on the high school kids? You know, it's just kind of how he, how does he manage the new SEC? Because Notre Dame is not 
the SEC. It is a phenomenal job and always will be. And I think they got it right with who they hired. Um, but the SEC is very, 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 very different. And if he doesn't get it and doesn't understand what he needs to do with that new challenge, it, it can fall apart quickly. And he's 60. He's a 60-year-old white guy going into Louisiana. You know, that he's going to have to find some, some assistance some guys around him that help him with that transition because it's, it's a real one. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Man, is the SEC West a bear. We got 20 minutes in before we talked about Kiffin, which uh, will give that guy that thinks you're an LSU plant on the board plenty of ammunition uh, to continue to, I guess, uh, spout that conspiracy theory. Um, I, I like that one. I, <laughs> I, wait, one second. I love that. I love that so much. He, he finally caught me. I, I've been a spy from day one. I, I chose to go to Ole Miss. How many kids did you turn to LSU while you were working for Matt Luke? Oh, my God. If, if they had only known how many kids I tried to get out of Louisiana to go to <laughs> Ole Miss, it's amazing. I, I did appreciate the CIA LSU spy comments. I did not even take that even a little bit offensively. Um, I, I laughed pretty hard when I saw it <laughs> it's that's that's pretty good stuff that that felt like a uh, a message board initiation for me a little bit <laughs> well uh, we'll get to the interrogation portion of the podcast later where I probably try to get you to finally admit it maybe we'll get some truth serum going well, uh, speaking of the portal kind of stability and all of that Dwayne Kiffin will be at Ole Miss next year he signs an extension uh, I think the news broke last night or they put out a release yet at some point yesterday like five minutes after the SEC championship game was over Classic. There we go. Ole Miss PR one. Definitely not on purpose. <laughs> uh, Meek School of Journalism's finest there. Uh, actually, I think he got canceled. I don't know what. He got canceled. About. Yeah, that sorry. Not uh, we'll edit that out. Um, <laughs> anyway, so you put out the release. I think we uh, it could be kind of known since I would say about Thursday that it was probably coming. Um, I believe rebelgrove.com reported. Yeah, Chase put it in an article that he wrote this morning. Uh, they have sourcing that is it's $7.5 million a year. That is approximately $7.5 million a year. Uh, which is big boy money. That's the most Ole Miss has ever paid a football coach per year. Um, you know, that's that's a commitment to Kiffin, and that's a commitment that you're serious to, you know, retaining your coach and winning. And I think yesterday was a good day for Ole Miss all around. You go to the Sugar Bowl, um, you get Kiffin to stay. We'll get to the levy part of it in a second. But just generally when you heard this news that he signed an extension, he will be in Oxford at least for next year. What was your initial reaction? I mean, I think it's really good for you. For, for Ole Miss, um, having him committed, whatever his version of committed is, uh, at least it'll be financially. So that that's that's good. Um, and I think it just helps with the trajectory and momentum of the, of the program going forward. Uh, you have some continuity. You kind of know where you're at. Uh, and, I mean, I guess we'll have to see some of the details, but it's a lot of money. And it's a lot of money for any school, not just for Ole Miss. Um, I know people are like, oh, look at LSU and Miami and USC. Like, it, it's going to be a top 10, you know, contract in all of college football, which is huge. And um, it's it's awesome. It's good, it's good for Ole Miss. It's good for Kiffin. I think he um, may kind of begin to realize that this is where he's at and this is where he's going to be and uh, put some commitment in himself. So I, I think it'll be a good deal. Uh, I think a lot of the coaching stuff, you got to see what, what's going on with Levy and, you know, and Durkin and what's the continuity of the staff. But he, like I've said, he's always proven to do a really, really good job at hiring people. So we'll see what happens. But it's, it's a big deal for Ole Miss. And, you know, that kind of notoriety 
whether from social media or just in general, that's always good for this place. So big deal. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think you worded the last part of that pretty well, where I think it took maybe is going to take some realization. Maybe that's already started that this is where he is and where he's going to be. And if he's someone that, look, I think they all desire. uh, I mean, every coach that gets in this industry, you know, covets and desires those select few jobs. And that's probably the ultimate goal for just about everyone that gets in this profession and gets to the head coaching, uh, I guess, level of it. And again, hypothetical, but like this to say he really wanted, you know, the Florida or LSU job or whatever. I, I think this coaching cycle, if he learned something from it, it's the fact that he's probably going to need to build and win for multiple years until he's considered in that. I think maybe initially uh, before the coaching carousel really got heated up, there was maybe a misconception of how Kiffin is viewed from the standpoint of decision makers and those in power versus fans and even media in some cases, because when you go down the list, he was never really a serious candidate at LSU. He was never really a serious candidate at Florida. He was never really a candidate at all at USC. Uh, that's a different situation with his history there and all of that. But I imagine if Lane Kiffin, let's just say he was dying to get out, just a hypothetical. If that were the case, don't you think he, if yesterday or this entire coaching carousel taught him, hey, I'm probably going to need to build and have some sustained success for three to four years before I get to that tier um, or at least have real opportunities to get to that tier. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um... I think he really likes to be and wants to be in the SEC. Um, and that's definitely real. I think it would be naive to think that his name didn't come up for all these jobs just because Jimmy Sexton was floating it out there. <laughs> you know, yes. it's kind of a two-way street. Uh, I, I'm sure Lane was interested in, in a lot of these openings. And I think that's been verified as fact and some of it as rumor and doesn't really matter because, you know, he's at Ole Miss. And I think that if he wants to get one of these jobs – which I'm sure he does. I, I don't know. But um, the reality is, is they didn't want him. <laughs> right. So he, he's here. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's like hates to be at Ole Miss. That, that does, those aren't mutually exclusive situations. Um, he's coaching in the SEC. He's about to go to the Sugar Bowl. He's got real momentum and a real program that has a chance. And I think he w- knows they have a chance to, to build upon this season signing the new contract is kind of a, a part of that, but it's also kind of just standard with the business. Um, I, I think he's going to be here for longer than maybe even he thought. And is that a positive or negative for him in his mind? It's probably still a positive all overall. I think he he's dying to prove that all the stuff that happened in the past is in the past. And I think he's already done that, even though for some reason people still keep bringing it up. Um, his baggage and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, I think he's here. I think he's going to be here for a little bit. I think you should just get used to if jobs open up, that his name's going to come up. But at the end of the day, he's still almost his coach. They're still about to get playing the Sugar Bowl, and that's enough to be uh, pretty satisfied. <laughs> I think you're exactly right on that. And the $7.5 million figure is, I think, pretty significant because, as you said at the top of this, that's a lot of money for – not just Ole Miss, that's a lot of money for any coach in anywhere. And you mentioned, you know, look at LSU, look at Florida. Well, like those are jobs that are a tier above Ole Miss. And you mentioned, I think the way you put it earlier was it's a top 10 job. And like, I don't know what else you want. If Ole Miss is paying its head coach, if 
one of and making him one of the 10 richest coaches in college football. I don't know what you can ask for, not only just for Ole Miss, any program that's not Alabama, Ohio State, Oklahoma, and they take up three of the five spots or three of the 10 spots I'm talking about. I, I think that, that that's a significant number. And I think that kind of quells, finally puts to bed in this modern day and age of college football of the second tier programs, the non-elite ones, but still good jobs that are in major conferences, Ole Miss being, I think, at the upper end of that second tier. Doesn't you think that kind of quells the narrative that if a coach gets plucked by a program, a blue blood program, it will be because of money? I think the whole money part of it has almost been taken completely out because if if you can make seven and a half million dollars a year and if Lane Kevin continues to win, I think that number will go up. I yeah. think the, the financial discrepancy when it comes to paying head coaches has become way less of a factor between the old misses of the world and like the Alabamas, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think the, the weirdest thing that's happening now is is people are st- not weird, but people are starting to realize that coaches don't necessarily always make decisions on the same thing. Everyone just assumes that, you know, someone's going to want to go to LSU or Alabama or Ohio State because, oh, we're just going to pay them so much money. And obviously Ole Miss – whoever it may be, just can't match it. That's not true. <laughs> and it really has never been true. No. If LSU wanted to pay Lane Kiffin $10 million like they're paying Brian Kelly, Ole Miss probably cannot match that. Um, if Miami was trying to pay $9 million, Ole Miss may not be able to match that. But coaches moving, like I get Lincoln Riley, for example, people will say that, oh, why would he leave for USC? Oklahoma's a better job. Or Lane Kiffin, why would he leave Ole Miss for Miami? You know, at least in the mindset of the people in the industry following it, Ole Miss is a better job. All coaches think differently. Some coaches might want to leave for the money. Some coaches might want to leave for where they're living, which is a big thing. That was a deal here at Ole Miss, and um, it was true. <laughs> you know, like he, he probably would have rather liked to live in Miami than Oxford. Um, some coaches want to go in the SEC. Some coaches want to leave the SEC. There's always different reasons for why people want to leave. Maybe you want to go back to your where you've, you're from or maybe where you went to college or where you, where you started coaching. I mean, Mel Tucker left Colorado for Michigan State because he started his coaching career at Michigan State and wanted to go back. The differences between Colorado and Michigan State, I mean, State's better, but it's not like a mountain climbing better job. Um, now, of course, he probably didn't expect to get paid $100 million to stay there, but, but still, um, it, it's just it's such a different day and age. The money is so big that these coaches are now looking at these jobs by more, what's the opportunity? What's, what is everything about the job besides the money? Because the money will just be there no matter what, is I guess kind of the whole point I'm trying to make with all this. And I think you're totally right that the way it's being thrown out there the switching jobs, it's not because you're going to a better job always. It may just be a better situation because the money is going to be there no matter what. Yeah, you're right. It's really the it's, – it's two things. Like you mentioned, it's coaches and what they value. And now it's the only, like, separating – or the predominant separating factor is resources. And, like, that doesn't necessarily mean money at all. It's the recruiting aspect of it and facilities. So, like, I think those two things are way more prevalent in what these coaches value when they – are deciding to either stick with the current job or leave the one they had than money. And I think, you know, 20 years ago, that money was definitely probably more of a, there was more money disparity. And I think it was more of a factor. And now with these TV deals that keep going up, all these programs are rich. And so like, I guess it's not, it's not the SEC of 20 years ago. And I don't think from fans perspective, our thinking has necessarily caught up uh, in that regard because, you know, 
it's, I mean, Ole Miss, when it came to Kiffin, every name, every time his job, or excuse me, I can't talk today, his name was tied to a job. It was like understood, oh, of course he'll leave there for that. It's like, no, actually he won't. And so I just don't think people's thinking, and media is guilty of this too, in some degree, has caught up with what these jobs are and the gaps between them now. And so kind of spinning it, I felt like we just took a, a gigantic dump on this whole thing for about 15 minutes. But spinning this as a positive, because it is a positive and a great day for Ole Miss, it kind of gives you a collective sigh of relief, I guess, as a fan base. You don't have to go into this early signing period with this hanging over you. Like, he's going to be here for the next year, and now you can kind of, I guess, get on and worry about other things. But, you know, they still got to go finish this one off. They got to go play in the Sugar Bowl, and that's a big moment for the program and great for branding. And so, like, I don't know how much stability it gives the program long-term, but to use your free agency analogy – for the NBA owner when talking about these coaching deals, that's what all these, uh, that's what all these, these franchises are seeking when they like sign a player, they know in two years, the entire league could be different, but you have stability for the next 365 days. And I think that's important because I think long-term stability is rarer and rarer and harder to find. So Ole Miss kind of having their guy for the next year, I think is big, particularly in a year where they're going to have to go recruit and replace a lot of dudes. Exactly. I mean, he, he, they've already mentioned it so much. The transfer portal, I mean, we saw some guys, two guys that were on campus this weekend and Evans and, and Gabriel. I mean, that's what they're going to be doing, and that's how they're going to rebuild this roster because I can tell you he does not want to take a step back. And I think that was kind of his biggest concern going in and maybe why he was like, oh, maybe one of some of these other jobs might be interesting was because they got to replace a lot. That doesn't mean they can't do it, and I think that they will be able to do it. Um, so it will be a very interesting year. they got a chance next year to start off really, really hot um and a really really tough back end of the schedule so but that's not all always a bad thing because you get you know some of those easier games under your belt uh of course they'll be taking on the fighting john john summerall's uh week one so that'll be a tough one uh but yeah it is it is exciting some continuity some momentum going forward i think that's really really good for this program and so this is something i wrote about this week the there, I felt like there was some Lane Kiffin fatigue leading up to all this from, and I think this is more of a fan base thing, whether it was the, you know, his name being rumored in a couple jobs, the Miami saga, which is still ongoing, which we're about to get to, which I don't know what the hell is going on there. The negging of the fan base regarding uh, attendance and all of that. There just seemed to be some fatigue, like Ole Miss is 10 and two and playing in the sugar bowl. And like, if you're an Ole Miss person or consume Ole Miss content, what time, what did you spend more time talking about and listening to over the last week? Who, uh, who, what job he was going to take and who was going to be his replacement and how that was going to shake out or the fact that Ole Miss is 10-2 and two and probably going to the Sugar Bowl. Obviously, it's a for sure thing now, but throughout the week, it was just which New Year's Six Bowl they were going to land in. And it's interesting. Like, there's a couple of different ways to look at this, but the way I've always looked at Lane Kiffin, and I think my I've, I've become more entrenched in this stance, is we don't have an ev- any evidence or any sample size of him staying for a long period of time at any place ever. I mean, he didn't stay at at Tennessee for a year. That's the most famous one. But he wasn't at USC for very long. You know, he wasn't at FAU for very long. He wasn't the head coach of the Oakland Raiders for very long. This is a guy that doesn't have any sort of track record of long-term success anywhere. So I think this could that could work as a positive for Ole Miss in the sense that what we talked about earlier is I think he probably realizes if he wants one of these upper-level jobs and is constantly seeking it, he's going to have to prove he can build for two, three years. And, you know, I say two, three years, 
if he has another season like this last season, he'll probably become a much hotter commodity because this stuff tends to go faster than we want to give it credit for in terms of how we view guys um, and how, you know, their stock as head coaches, but he does need to show he can build and recruit. And so I think that's a positive for Ole Miss, even if the, uh, I guess the reasons aren't the most digestible. And then finally, like if you're looking at it from an Ole Miss fans perspective, just kind of enjoy the year Tiffin are there, particularly if they're winning. And then you just got to kind of hope that he, the program's in a decent uh, state with a uh, backup plan ready to go when he leaves. Because I think kind of constantly seeking long-term commitment from Kiffin, like fans wanted him to kind of come out and say, hey, I'm here, I'm ready to build. I don't think you're ever going to get that, both on that public-facing scale, that smaller, or just behind the scenes in general. Part of that is the four-year contract thing, but most of it is Kiffin just being Kiffin. And that's the way I've always looked at it. Just enjoy it while it's here and hope that the program's in a good state when he leaves and kind of capitalize on where he left you when he did leave. Because if he leaves, that means the program's in a great spot currently. Exactly. I mean, that's what I've always said about this place. You know, when you have Kiffin, you get the whole Kiffin experience. But at the end of the day, if he's winning 10 games, who cares what he thinks about Ole Miss? Like, he is your coach. Like, who cares – if he bleeds red and blue, like he's the coach of Ole Miss, he is still the coach of Ole Miss, he's going to be the coach of Ole Miss, and if he's successful, that's great. And if after all that success, he leaves, who cares? Because you're now you're in a much better place than you were before he got here. Your job now proves it can pay top 10 money in this new era of college football, and you're probably going to have a better candidate of uh, – or better – pool of candidates than you had before he came so it's just that's a fantastic point because look at the candidates they were trying to hire after freeze before luke was given the interim job look at who they were looking at compared to what they'll be able to look at presumably like if kiffin leaves <laughs> i think frank wilson was like a legitimate candidate frank wilson is the head coach at mcneese state right now they were gonna hire and dave doran yeah exactly and guess what he might have actually done well. Yeah, but he'd have been fun, but it's, it's not the same class of it's not the same class of resumes. No, it's it's not, and um, that's always like the analogy. It's like you know, if he's winning ten games at Ole Miss because he cares or doesn't care, like does it matter? Like whether he dies for the Ole Miss Rebels is not relevant to him or to like almost every single coach in college football. I mean, even Nick Saban. You think he's been there for a long time? He went to Alabama because it's the best job in college football. But still to this day, he probably doesn't exactly bleed, you know, crimson and white. <laughs> it's just – it's his job. And these guys, it's all their jobs. Just because you love the place doesn't mean you're going to be successful at the place. I think you see that all the time in college football. <coughs> Excuse me. If you hire a guy back to his alma mater or back to where he's from, that doesn't always correlate to success maybe he cares too much. You know, you just never know. So I think Ole Miss is in a great spot. They're about to go play in a big bowl game against a really good team. And fortunately for, you know, the fans of both teams, both Baylor and Ole Miss really want to be there. So that's awesome. So that's what I you would be more, for, more focused on. But I do understand why people have the, the Kiffin fatigue. But to be honest, it's don't bite the hand that feeds you. It's just it's just what's going on and kind of how what you get when you have Kiffin. Exactly. And it's maybe we're headed towards that. But the, 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 the if I could make the case for long, I say headed towards that, I guess what I mean is it, the long term stability, long term commitment is becoming more and more rare uh, just with the way yeah. the money is and everything else. But if I could make the case for if Lane Kiffin is at Ole Miss in five years, I don't think he's at Ole Miss in five years. But if he is, 
the case would be, I'm trying to think how to outline this in real time because I had two notes written down. I was like, actually, this doesn't make sense. It would be one, they didn't take a step back this year. Like they're continued, the recruiting goes well, they're still relevant next year. And for whatever reason, he doesn't, it's still not considered one of those elite jobs. And then if you get him to the 12 team playoff, I don't know when that's coming. They, they had a college football expansion. It seems like it's not coming that soon. I know that's the, that's the fascinating part about this. Like, I just wonder like if, if that were coming two years earlier, say we were getting a 12 team playoff next year, how that would change. I wonder if it would change anything because Ole Miss would be in it this year. And I'm just curious, like how that would change one, how Kiffin's viewed and how he views his current setup versus whatever, if there's something else out there he desires. Yeah, I mean, I guess if he's here in five years, he, in my opinion, he's like won a national championship. Yeah, or made the play, made this current version of the playoffs, or made it to a national championship, or won the SEC, or or some sort of major mile mark for the program, or he's become kind of like a Dabo, where like, like, uh, by the way, Dabo probably doesn't bleed, you know, purple and orange either because he went to Alabama and is from Alabama. Um, if Kiffin's still here in five years, he has had monumental success and to a point where it's like, why am I leaving? Um, so I, I, I wouldn't even see it, but still. I guess that was the, the best way to describe it was like I was trying to make the case and I just really couldn't make one. So, again, I, that's my take on the thing. It's just kind of enjoy it while it's here and try to capitalize on it, because if he does eventually depart, that means you're probably in a pretty good place now. What's interesting is now the next – that domino is secured, but the next one's kind of falling. And the next kind of order of business, I guess, for Ole Miss is to figure out who's going to be its offensive coordinator next year. Jeff Levy, there was a report out this morning, a couple of reports I have, Breckman Murphy's up, about um, Brent Venables probably – sounds like he's probably going to take the Oklahoma job. Uh, McMurphy used some pretty strong language in there and uh, is probably going to bring Jeff Levy with him is, I think, the way he used it. But Jeff Levy is certainly a top candidate for the Oklahoma – offensive coordinator job if that is the route they indeed end up going which it sounds like with Brent Venables I think he has interest elsewhere Uh, it sounds like he has some interest from LSU and a couple others I think the odds of Jeff Lebby being at Ole Miss as the offensive coordinator this year are pretty slim and it's interesting I was reading whether through the board earlier and then I was reading a couple articles about it and like I guess it I'm trying to think of the best way to say this in September we all knew this was going to happen right it was yeah. pretty much a given that at the end of the year, if Ole Miss had a good year, Jeff Levy was not going to be there. And so there'll probably be some initial shock value when he leaves. And it's like, oh, how the hell is Kevin going to replace him? Well, this was kind of a given. If Ole Miss had a good year, he was going to go somewhere else. I figured it would actually be a head coaching job, but some pretty elite offensive coordinator jobs have uh, come open. And I just think with all the options that he has, the odds of Jeff Levy being at Ole Miss next fall seem to be pretty slim because one of them open is his alma mater. Yeah, I would – if I'm an Ole Miss fan, I'd probably be preparing for a new offensive coordinator. Uh, I, I think he's probably going to go to Oklahoma. Um, I don't know that. I'm just if, – if I had to guess, the report – the guys that are reporting this stuff know what they're talking about. Um, and it, it makes sense from just every single realm. You know, going to play – going back to his alma mater, going to work for a defensive coach um, – uh, he and Kiffin have been a, a marriage by need on both sides, and I think it's probably time for that to that need to wither away. Um, and now it will be Lane's turn to hire another guy, and he has batted damn near 100 on hires. So no I think you just kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, 
at least at that part of his job. So it'll be interesting. It, it's a it's a big loss, and there's no way around it. He, um, for the millionth time on this podcast, don't ever under, underestimate what Levy means to this program. Um, but he is going to probably be gone. So figure it out. That's the, what you have to do. The fact that you're having to state that, like don't underestimate Levy's value to the program. And I think that became more evident and more mainstream this year, but you were kind of early harping on that about his value and what he does to kind of make the offense go. There's probably, that's probably some factor in him departing Ole Miss for a job that is not a head coaching job. I, this all like, this sounds short sighted. I'm not, I don't, I don't think Levy sits up every night and is like, damn, I'm not getting enough credit for the success we had no, this year by any means. No, no, but no. it's just the marriage of working for an offensive coach versus having complete control of the offense. And like credit is just a word to, I guess, kind of describe, like, I guess the, the responsibility that he has. It's basically autonomy. Like it's not credit. I think he probably wants to go somewhere where he has complete 100% autonomy of the offense. And, you know, as great as he's been and even the credit side of it, I don't think you're ever going to get your full due or have full autonomy while working with an offensive coach. It's not a Lane Kiffin thing. I just think he probably wants to have his, in his own project to build. Right. And you know, he, ha- it, this has been his offense and I, I know that's not what you're saying. So, I mean, he has been calling the sure. play majority of the game planning, you know, all of it, it has been his, but going back to a place like Oklahoma where, you know, that's where he's been before. It, it just makes too much sense. And, you know, you don't want to hear it, but Oklahoma offensive coordinator job is a better job than the Ole Miss offensive coordinator job. Now, does he have more continuity and has been here and has, has kind of established himself? Absolutely. And he's going to have to go earn some trust at, o, at OU. But at the end of the day, it just makes so much sense. I mean, I know like John, John Summerall, when he was at Ole Miss, he left the Ole Miss linebacker coaching job to go back to Kentucky. I don't even think he made more money at Kentucky, but he went back because that's where he played. That's, that's where he met his wife. Like it just makes sense. And Levy it's, it's a similar deal, but at kind of a different level um, because coordinator compared to position coach. Um, I mean, LSU made a run at him. I don't know if that that's probably dead. I think he's going to Oklahoma. I think that's what it seems like everything is pointing towards and, um, I mean, good for him. He he has done nothing but be successful here at Ole Miss, and uh, I mean, it's it's a tough loss. I don't know what, what he bring assistance with him. That's that'll probably be a, a Venables call uh, more than anything. Uh, but he'll definitely have some some options uh, of some guys. But we'll see what happens. But that'll probably come down the pipe in a day or two. It just seems inevitable at this point. So you don't put much weight on the fact that Lane Kiffin is an offensive guy and known as an offensive innovator, like innovator. And like, I don't know, I hate using this analogy, but like, is he like, you don't put any value on him wanting to escape Kiffin's shadow. No, I really don't. Because okay, that's I don't interesting. He, I don't think he needs that for the people that actually matter just because, you know, you've got guys on, on, on Twitter you know, saying, look at Lane, look at Lane, look at Lane. It's it's the agents and coaches in the industry that matter. And uh, he gets his his credit from the people that that matter, which is pretty clear because he uh, is about to go to Oklahoma, it seems like. <laughs> you know, if, if he wasn't going to go there, you know, he was going to go to maybe a, another head coaching job. Like, it was coming, and it's been coming, and there's multiple schools after him. They're not after him because they want to know the secrets of Lane Kiffin. They're after him because they want Jeff Levy as their offensive coordinator, and he's really damn good at what he does. So, 
uh, no, I don't give too much credence or, you know, anything towards him just being like, I can't, I'm tired of not getting my due because that's just, I don't think that's true at all. Interesting. If someone were to come up to you and say, why would you leave the Ole Miss offensive coordinator job for Oklahoma? Who's I would, it's, it's too strong a word probably to say the program is in turmoil, but there's a lot of change and a lot of transition going on there after the Lincoln Riley thing, because, and I think part of that is just the surprise factor of Riley departing and particularly to where he departed and bringing the amount of recruits he's already brought there with him. I guess why, if, why would he leave stability for perceived instability? I agree. I, I understand. I understand why, but like in your mind, why do you think that would be the case? I think there's probably a few different factors. Uh, one is, I guess you really never know what Lane's going to do. So you're, you're the offensive coordinator for a head coach who maybe he's going to be there next year. Maybe he's not. So it's, you're stable in what you've built in the continuity of your, of your scheme, but not necessarily, you know, knowing what's going on at your own place, even though, yeah, he signed the contract. So he's here now, but who knows what the future holds. Um, second part, you're, you've got a fresh slate at Oklahoma. You go there with a, with a brand new head coach. He's going to have a brand new deal. Your job stability is as secure as it was at Ole Miss, if not, you know, technically even more because you, it's your first year. Uh, and that, that's a huge deal for coaches. Having a, an athletic director, head coach, that kind of stability is, is real and a real factor when these guys make these decisions. And then third is you get to go have Caleb Williams compared to who knows who's going to be the quarterback for Ole Miss next year. And, you know, Maybe Williams leaves, maybe he doesn't, but he'll have his hand in doing his best job of recruiting him. And if you get to keep him, then that makes a ton of sense, you know, instead of having to uh, maybe take a step back uh, from the best quarterback in the country to who knows who the quarterback for Ole Miss is going to be next year. So there's a lot of factors. I think Ole Miss has some advantages. You're in the SEC playing against the best and you're set up at any moment in time you want to, to go leave for a head coaching job at a different school. Um, but Oklahoma has some advantages as well. They'll probably pay plenty. You get to be in a conference where you get to have the opportunity to definitely go to the playoff every single year and Caleb Williams. So it, it's a, it's not as a surefire move of a, this is a better deal than maybe I said earlier, but it does make a ton of sense from a lot of different angles. What will be fascinating is if Oklahoma and Texas are playing SEC schedules next year. That'll be kind of like, holy, like, like, I, like it's like he's leaving for a Big 12 program, but isn't there still an outside chance that that's an SEC program next fall? That's the wild, like, the wild card aspect of all this, particularly yeah. not only with Levy, who they hire as a head coach. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very, very, very bizarre. I don't think they're going to be in the SEC next fall. I think the all of these leaders have done a just phenomenal job of – mangling and screwing up every single thing along the way the playoff this expansion all these old white guys don't know what the hell they're doing um so I, who knows but uh i do understand what you're saying now <laughs> it's uh so kind of spinning it back to the old miss side of it there was a lot of uh it almost became a certainty to the point where 247 put in i think that Dylan gabriel transferred old miss on their website and then took it off so i don't i don't know what the deal was with that but Dylan gabriel had been strongly uh rumored kind of hinted at that he was probably going to transfer to old miss and be the quarterback at old miss next year that of course is just naturally tied in with levy because he's coming from ucf where levy was up until 2019 just your best guess at how this affects 
the Ole Miss Gabriel thing and just who in general is playing quarterback at Ole Miss next year? That's a great question. Um, Because if Caleb Williams stays, like, he doesn't need one, right? Right. So I don't think he would bring Gabriel with him if Caleb Williams stays. Um, I I would imagine Gabriel was pretty tied in with Levy. That was obviously his offensive coordinator at USC – I mean, UCF when he was there. Um, Would Gabriel just come to Ole Miss anyway? I don't think that's something you can just completely dismiss, you know. Um, you, you never know. Um, I guess who's the offensive coordinator that Lane's going to bring in will probably make a factor into that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's that'll definitely be a, a hurdle. Who's the quarterback for Ole Miss next year is anyone's guess. Could it be Luke Altmeyer? Absolutely. Could it be Gabriel? Sure. Could it be Miles Brennan or Spencer Rattler? Definitely possible. I mean, I've heard Rattler's name come up like more and more over the last few days with Ole Miss. Um, Seems like they're, it's a waiting pattern. What that waiting pattern is, I don't know. But um, that seems to be something at least. Um, so it'll be very, very interesting. Uh, I, it's anyone's guess right now. It will be fascinating how that plays out because had Levy stayed, it seemed pretty concrete, right? You bring in Gabriel and then you just try to go fill yeah. out the rest of the roster. And now it's a, it's a, uh, there's a lot of moving pieces. And that's just kind of the way this thing is from, I think this is the way every offseason is going to be for quite a while yeah. in college football. And I don't think, I don't think um, Evans, I don't think he's tied into Levy. So if Evans wants to come to Ole Miss and Levy's not there, that I don't think that would change his perspective at all. That he's more of a, a Kiffin, Kevin Smith deal than a, than a Jeff Levy deal. So I know he was on campus. I, I would expect him to go, to go to Ole Miss. Um, but of course, we all expected that when I was still working there, and he didn't. So you never know with that kid, but we'll see. Ole Miss, if I'm not, if I was told a couple of times from people I would know for a fact would know this. I was told that Ole Miss was still pretty hot after Evans, even it, after like shit had hit the fan and it seemed like, well, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. After the whole like he blew up for all the wrong reasons, Ole Miss was still in on him pretty late before he went to the TCU. Like that was a real possibility until the bitter end. That we thought we had him. We thought it was over, and we really? were just kind of waiting for the day that he was just going to show up on campus and start classes. And I, I mean, I've said about this kid; he's got a lot of people around him that he probably shouldn't. Um, and, but he is not a bad kid. Um, he's made some immature mistakes throughout his high school career, but you know, we we were like just waiting for him, and waiting and waiting, and kind of once you kept waiting and waiting, you knew. Okay, maybe this isn't happening. And then he ended up at TCU, like literally out of nowhere. So I've always who, wondered like this. Said, who knows? This is a complete non sequitur, but I've always wondered this. When you say, because he was the prime example of this, where he just kind of almost seemed to go MIA from a media side. Like covering that story, I remember for like 10, 12 days, no one could tell me anything because no one seemed to know anything. And so when you guys say you were waiting, where the hell, where is he? Like, is he just, is he like, are you talking to him? Is he not responsive? Like, what is that process like where you don't know what the hell he's doing? That like, is he keeping you hundred percent in the dark? What were those days like? Cause I always wonder what that kind means. of, kind of like in the dark. I mean, he was very unique cause he went past the, the signing day, not the early one. He went past the second one. I mean, he didn't get to TCU till like April or May or, or March or something. Um, He was like going back and forth between Nashville working out there and Houston and uh, we have some Nashville connections, and we were like, okay, well, maybe he'll just stop here on his way home. <laughs> I, I, we just did not know. Like, literally no one knew. It was just a, a kind of like an assumption. They're like, okay, we were probably going to get him, just a matter of time. And then 
it became a, he's not, we're not hearing anything from him or any of his people and we don't know what's going on. And eventually we kind of were just like, okay, he's either going to come or he's not. And I don't remember all of the exact conversations or thoughts, but that kind of was the resounding thought was, you know, either he's coming or he's going to Auburn or TCU and he ended up at TCU kind of out of nowhere. That was such a wild, wild story. It was, it really was. It was the, one of the weirdest recruitments I've ever been around. Kind of putting a bow on the, uh, on the uh, offensive coordinator talk of this. It's, this is another, when you talk about Kiffin building and proving that he can win for a sustainable period of time, this is a big hurdle to climb. You got to get the offensive coordinator higher right. And you got to get a quarterback to come in just based on your intuition. If this Levy thing kind of goes the way we think it is, do you have any sort of fit idea who you think he might hire or at least look at? Does anyone make sense immediately? Um, I mean, the first name that makes sense is Charlie Weiss Jr. because he worked with Kiffin at FAU. He's been at USF uh, with Jeff Scott over there in Tampa. They have been a really bad football team. Is Charlie really to blame for that? I don't know. Um, Charlie is like 27 years old. He's like a year older than me, and he is – really damn good at his job from literally everyone you ever talk to that talks about Charlie is like, this guy's a stud Um, and he's going to be a star and he just needs some time. And, you know, Kiffin is very prone to hiring those kind of people. Charlie was, I think, 24 when he was the offensive coordinator for Kiffin at FAU. That is unheard of. Um, So that name would make a lot of sense. Of course, you have to consider, you know, who – is there anybody out there that has a relationship with Arch Manning and how will that affect things? Because Levy sure as hell did. And um, you're probably going to have to make up some ground at some point there. Do you go hire the QB coach at Texas, the Millway guy? Do you go, I don't know, just don't even bring up Joe Brady's name because that's not happening. <laughs> um, just stop before you – get your mind wrapped around that. Uh, I don't know. It'll be very interesting. Kendall Browse is not going to leave Arkansas to go to Ole Miss. That's not going to happen. Uh, I don't know. It, it'll be very interesting. There's guys out there that are qualified, and I'm sure, like I've said, he's willing to go young and hungry, and that's almost always a good thing um, on a coaching staff. Young and hungry is so much better than uh, experienced and retread at all times. The poster child of what you're talking about is Bo Pelini, is it not? Bo Pelini, Bobo, you know, th- those guys that just come around. It's not because they're not good at their job. It's just like, oh, they've been here before. They had the experience. Let's just, let's just get them on in here uh, real quick. So I, I don't know who he's going to hire, but the, it'll be interesting. That is interesting. Said. Do you think that's just part of the insular nature of the coaching industry? And like, I'm not saying guys are doing favors for each other, but like Mike Bobo, the last two times he's been hired, I've just sat back and was like, why? This guy hasn't been a good hire, you know, in, in half a decade. Like, it, I would, like, if I was a head coach, it's easy for me to say that I would always do the young route and innovative route because like the retread, it's just, like, I wonder what the success rate is on that. I would like to, to kind of someone to look into that, some nerd out there crunch the numbers and what the retread success rate versus like young first time guy is. But anyway, neither here nor there. I'm glad you brought up the Arch Manning part of this because that was an oversight on my part. Probably should have been thrown in the conversation about Kiffin building and winning long-term. I think it's probably tied in with the offensive coordinator hire. He's probably going to have to make to some degree. How much, as someone who worked in the recruiting office, how much can you tie one specific hire around one player? I know it's probably a little bit different because he's a, you know, the best quarterback in the country at the most important position in football, but how much weight can you put on a coordinator hire burst uh, based on one kid that you don't even have yet? 
you you should never do it. Okay. You, you should never ever do it. Does that mean that he won't? I, I don't know. But you never. No one player is bigger than the program. No one coach is bigger than the program. You, you can't operate in that faction, um, and you shouldn't because one, he's not at all. He's not committed to Ole Miss. He he's still got a whole another year. Whenever he makes that decision, who knows? I obviously don't love talking about Arch because his cousin's one of my very good friends. So it's just kind of like, it's, it's weird, but um, you, you don't hire one coach based off of one player ever. You hire a coach because he's qualified and you put him in a position to recruit and do his job. And you know, hopefully you can get a player like Arch. Uh, but I, I don't see Kiffin going out there and be like, you know, who is Arch going to commit to? Because that's just shouldn't be how you run a program. Would he come if they hired Chuck Sylvia? <laughs> yes. <laughs> if they hire Charles Sylvia as the offensive coordinator, Arch will come. And Charles Sylvia does not coach football. He is who I'm talking about. <laughs> he, he is my, my friend who we're going to Tampa in two weeks. So don't, don't freak out Ole Miss people and start Googling who the hell Charles Sylvia is. I was about to say the exact same thing. I said you spoiled, <laughs> Do not Google you, spoiled, you spoiled the bit there. I wonder how many times in the Google search engine Chuck Sylvia football – yeah. And after All you're going to see is a picture of him uh, and Newman <laughs> football losing a playoff game. You're not going to see much else. It's fascinating, though. And kind of before we get to everything else, putting a bow on everything that's happened with Ole Miss, because I feel like we've talked about these individual parts, but putting it kind of in a large, big picture program perspective, Ole Miss is in a good place. And the fact that I think that they didn't lose Lane Kiffin, as obvious as sounds, is a net positive. Because as much as we're talking about, you know, Lebby being a big void to fill. Well, if you lost Lane Kiffin, unless you hired Lebby as your head coach, you were going to lose him and Durkin and pretty much everyone else. I don't know if they would have promoted him within. I think they probably would have taken a look at it. But the fact that you keep Kiffin, the rest of that's the most important, um, I guess, cog in this whole machine. You can replace some of these other parts. Like you can retool at the offensive coordinator position. And I think the other value in that is, you know, once you retain Kiffin, you've, retained a guy who has a very, very, very high batting average in getting these hires correct. Whereas if you'd have lost Kiffin somewhere else, you're going to have a new guy come in if it wasn't someone from within and having to, you know, hit on all of those hires, which is kind of the same as recruiting in that sense, where you've got to have a hit rate that is much higher than your, you know, miss rate, or you're going to suck as obvious that sounds. So I think having him in place, there's certainly value there as well. And so, as we kind of encapsulate this whole thing, Ole Miss has kind of got a month to prepare and market and brand the Sugar Bowl now, and their head coach is still intact, and nothing surprising happened. You knew in September you were going to lose Levy. You knew you were going to lose Matt Corral. So by keeping Kiffin, the rest of the problems, if you want to call it that, or challenges that you have to overcome in this offseason was stuff that you, in all likelihood and in all honesty, if you were being truthful with yourself, you were going to have to do it anyway. Yeah, you should have been anticipating it. And and probably Lane was too, from an extent. He's like, if I'm still here, he probably won't be. And that's been kind of the notion from for a long time. So now they can focus on the Sugar Bowl, which I'm super excited about. And, you know, it's, it's all a net positive. It, there are challenges, but that's just part of football these days. Yeah, it is. And so it's interesting. Ole Miss enters a really, really interesting offseason. And I think it will prove a lot um, – about who Lane Kiffin is as a coach and about who he is as a program builder. I would probably be the better way to describe that. And I'm fascinated to see how it plays out. And you know, the best part about winning and Ole Miss being successful is 
I, I cannot wait from a storyline perspective for next season to get here. I find this fascinating. And for the last half decade, I haven't found a whole lot of Ole Miss football fascinating. Um, I started covering the team full-time freezes last year. And then through that in the Luke years, just everything from on the field was the only fascination was from a dysfunctional aspect. And I find this fascinating for a lot of different reasons, just because I don't know. They're winning. They're good. They're relevant. How do they keep it there? Like, how do you stay in this tier? Because I think the difference between programs like, you know, Alabama, Oklahoma, and uh, USC, whatever, or USC is a bad one, but these upper tier programs stay up here. And Ole Miss hasn't been able to do that. I'm curious how they're able to do that over the next year or two. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be all in the portal. That's yep. how they're going to do it. it, it it's continuing momentum, uh, and it's a step-by-step deal. You know, you're, you, this is the third New Year's Six Bowl Ole Miss has been to since this whole thing has started, which is crazy because there's probably not many other teams that could say that. Truly, there's not that many. Their last three bowl games have been New Year's Six Bowls. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So um, just ignore those those years in between. Exactly. That's all you got to put on the press release. Just, that's what they should do. I, I'm sure they will. Um, but the next steps are when the West, you know, that that's kind of where you have to go from here. And that's obviously an incredibly difficult thing to do. Um, but in terms of, you know, if you want to have some staying power, you kind of have to prove that you're worthy of staying and doing that is, is making that next step. So I think that would be that next step is playoff or winning the West, at least getting to an SC championship game and, and kind of from there on. And obviously, like I said, very difficult, but kind of how you have to sustain success is proving that you can do it. Yep. That's fascinating. I, Cause they're still kind of on the rise and I always think, in these storylines, particularly whether it was Ole Miss or Freeze, like I always find the rise much more interesting in the fall in some aspects because, like, this season was fun. Like, I was like, can Ole Miss actually do 10-2? and two? Like, is this team actually this good? And we felt like we just learned bits and bits more about them each week. And so I'm fascinated to see what next year looks like because it's going to be different, but I still think they're still probably going to be pretty good. I just wonder if there's a step back at all. So anyway, that's uh, that probably covers that. We'll get into some Sugar Bowl probably a little bit later on. Yesterday, we learned the college, like the college football playoff took shape yesterday. And, uh, you know, when Oklahoma, that Baylor Oklahoma State game ended with Oklahoma State coming up short on the one yard line and one of the craziest finishes I've ever seen, like one of the best football games or best. Game games shit. Yeah, it really, it really was. That's a, that's a crappy sports movie ending. Uh, like yeah. that's the, that's the most like tr- cliche ending possible. And it, it was cool, obviously, much better in real life. But once that happened, I was like, are we about to get chaos today? Because I thought Alabama, or excuse me, Georgia was going to win at the time. But really everything else, you had chalk. And there wasn't really much drama at all about the college football playoff and who was going to be in it. And so I guess we'll start with Alabama, Georgia. I don't get stunned a lot. And it's weird because it's Alabama. That's what makes this even weirder to talk about. I thought that game would not be close. I thought Georgia could not block Alabama. And I thought Georgia would kind of run them into the ground. If like, I thought I saw that game is like 31, 13 or something like that, or 31, seven. I really thought Georgia was going to stomp them. And that wasn't the case at all. What did you think of that game? And do you think how much differently do you think of Georgia now? It's tough. Um, First, you know, there was no way on earth I was going to take Georgia as a touchdown favorite over Alabama, just from a, that beginning, I was there was just no way I was not I would not have done it. Um, I didn't expect what happened, but kind of while the game was going on, I was like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, Georgia has not played a single quarterback this year that even is in the same stratosphere as Bryce Young. 
And, yeah, this Alabama offense has struggled against teams that are not that good, LSU and Auburn. But to act like they're not talented and couldn't do what they did yesterday would have been very naive. Um, the, the thing about Georgia, uh, someone had tweeted this, and it makes so much sense, is that Kirby has built this team based off of his defensive front seven. And if his defensive se- front seven does not dominate a football game, they're in big trouble. This year, to put it. this year they have dominated in that in that you know that sphere of the game, but against Alabama they could not get home, and their DBs are still really good, but they're not that good, and it it showed. I mean, Alabama those guys were open all day long; they could not touch Bryce Young, and he just kept making play after play after play, and this team. You know, they Georgia was up early and looked like they had pretty firm control. And once they got down, you know, the offense was so stale. Bowers was completely neutralized for any relevant part of the game. They couldn't really run the ball with a lot of success. And then at the end of the day, Stetson Bennett, he's not a quarterback that beats Alabama. I don't care what Alabama it is. And guess what? This Alabama is now number one in the country. <laughs> so it's still they're still a damn good football team. And I don't necessarily think I think of Georgia differently. Um, I think Georgia is a bad, definitely a better team than Michigan, and I, I think Georgia will handle them. I do not know what this team looks like in a rematch. Um, you know, is JT Daniels alive? I, I don't know. <laughs> is, he, is he able to play? Do they want him to play? Um, because if you just roll out Stetson Bennett and have a similar game plan, you know, on January 9th or whenever that game is, when they rematch, you're in a load of trouble because it's not going to look much different. I mean, you saw like Oregon, I know it's obviously very different. They played Utah two weeks before they played them again. And the difference was three points. You know, this isn't the NFL where you've got professionals game planning and you've got professionals on the field and you play a division rival two times in a year and you never know what's going to happen. If Georgia does the same thing, they are going to get their ass kicked again because Bama's the one team that can really press them down the field. I mean, they even kind of ran it on them yesterday. Uh, it, it was pretty shocking. Uh, it was good for my wallet. Uh, but besides that, you know, Georgia fans have to be sitting looking at themselves like, oh, shit. <laughs> this is not the, uh, the steamroll national championship we thought we were going to get. And uh, that's actually good for football. But, uh, you know – the inevitability of Bama came back to kick their ass and it'll be interesting to see what happens next. You probably gave some Georgia betters listening to this, some serious scaries, because like when you looked at the line, initial thoughts, you're like, cause this Alabama team came in having played a weird game in the iron bowl where they look like shit. They gave a bunch of points to Arkansas. They didn't look very good in the second half of the season. But when you think about it from the perspective of I'm going to bet against Alabama as a six and a half point underdog, with Stetson Bennett as my quarterback, it doesn't seem nearly as smart. So that's, yeah. it's a, that's a tough one out there. So it's interesting because the other part of this was too, was Alabama was able to get the ball out quick. And honestly, Alka was wrong in the assessment that they couldn't block them. I thought they blocked them quite well. Uh, they were not getting home very consistently at four and five guys. And it seemed like I forget George's defensive coordinator's name, but you know, Georgia was not, Georgia was reluctant to send pressure 
And they kind of did it a little more in the second half and had more success. But not only did Alabama get the ball out quick, they actually fared better blocking. And I think that's reflective of what you just hit on. They actually ran it on him a little bit. 26 times for 115 yards is nothing to write home about, but it's also not being neutralized. The run game is relevant enough to keep you balanced offensively. And then the other aspect of it, once they had time to throw it, Georgia could not cover Alabama uh, in the secondary. Like the, oh, no. I mean, what Jamison Williams – that's seven for 184. I am just a uh, MIS educated math student. I think that's like 26 and a half yards per reception. When they chucked it deep, they had separation. I mean, even Mechie was six for 97. They did it with two dudes. Yeah. And all they need is a step. Yep. That's, that's all you need. You know, when you've got a guy like Young who can, who can throw it so accurately down the field, and he was just on one yesterday. Um, he won himself a Heisman Trophy. Good for him. Uh, he locked that up, I would think. Locked that up really really easily um so if you just get one step and you can't even put pressure on him at all you know you, you're just in serious serious trouble and they tried to spy him and you know nicobe dean is is a hell of a football player um and he couldn't keep up with with young he just couldn't the entire game um and then when you can run the ball at least efficiently doesn't have to be effectively just efficiently and continue to open up both things uh it was it was a bad bad recipe and then on the other side you know that georgia offense is it's good because they've got good players but it's not good schematically you know it, it's just kind of a, it's a little more old school than you'd like to see and they don't have a quarterback that can really pressure the ball down the field against bama and you have to have that I mean, no one has beaten bama without an effective uh quarterback that can throw it down the field and he is not that I think you're dead on with that because I love that uh, that tweet stat that gets resurfaced every time Alabama either went, beats a good team or loses is the quarterbacks that have beaten Alabama. And when you go down that list, everyone except for that random kid that had the game of his life against South Carolina in 2010, which is the last time Alabama's lost to an East opponent, which is just another st staggering stat about this dynasty, has been a like a dog. I mean, you think what Deshaun Watson, you're talking Chad Kelly and, you know, Stetson's been at hopes of doing that are pretty slim. So I, I think you're right. I think they're going to have to do something different if there's a rematch. How big of a, in your mind, as someone who's been around it and, and I think feel like, you know, coaches and staffs pretty well, how big of a uh, coaching mismatch do you think this was? Because I think the running aspect to me with Bryce Young running was indicative of that because I get they weren't design runs, but Alabama clearly knew that was going to be there because you saw Young take off with the football much more deliberately or excuse me, deliberately and way more often than he had done at any point this season. So that was clearly something they looked at and figured would be there. You mentioned to Kobe Dean not being able to spy him. And once they had time to throw and they had guys running down the field, there was seemed to be space in that intermediate era. And I'm just curious, like you mentioned the front seven part of it. Uh, I think there's some offensive front seven theory to that too. I know offense, you don't have a front seven, but it seems like Georgia rolls over dudes when they're much better on the offensive line of scrimmage and run it. That's why they have ridiculous backs, but they're, Overall scheme is not good. That was a long-winded way of asking it, but how big of a coaching mismatch do you think this was? Um, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say it was like a, uh, a Bill Belichick versus Mike McCarthy kind of coaching mismatch. Okay. Um, but I, I think just someone who's been there versus someone who is trying to get over that hump. I mean, there, there's a reason why one's one and one's the other. Uh, so I was at Kirby Icehouse in Houston with a buddy of mine. And he was telling me this stat that since Saban has gotten there, after his first year, he went six and six. 
Saban has lost by seven point more than seven points only four times at Alabama. They were an underdog by seven points in this game. I don't know. I can't. I think Clemson was one of those games. I think like Oklahoma and the Sugar Bowl was one of those four times since 2007. They've lost by more than seven points. So just based off of that, if that stat is true, I just didn't see this game being a blowout. That just it just didn't seem fathomable to me that that was going to be a possibility. Um, is Kirby a better coach than Saban? No. Is Kirby a bad coach? No. But I do think he is a little micromanagey, whereas Saban has gone the exact opposite, at least with the offense. Um, so they're going to probably see each other again. And there's going to have to be some serious looking in the mirror on Kirby's side and being like, I, I have to change something because we have not beaten them when it matters. And we're going to have to do it to win a national championship at some point, not even this year, just in general. Uh, but this is going to be as uh, as bad of a shot as he's ever going to have. So he's got to figure something out. It's fascinating because it's literally one guy standing in his way. You talk about a guy trying to get over the mountaintop. It is literally no one else. It's not like they're right, playing no. different opponents. There's one man in his way and one team in his way. And that's why it's credit to Kirby. It's like it's he is not a bad football coach. No, he is exactly. not a bad. He is not a, a, a like a Saturday crystal ball kind of guy. Like he's not that kind of like mismanaging game day kind of guy. But there is one guy in his way, and he's kind of in everybody's way. Yes, he is. Like Kirby has built a, a team that can challenge him and that can, absolutely can beat them. Um, but they're just going to have to really, really look themselves in, in the eyes and say, what the hell can we do differently? He is in everybody's way, which makes it the most Ole Miss thing ever that they beat that man twice and did not go to Atlanta once. Um, <laughs> sorry if that still stings people out there. That's yeah. just amazing to me. Um, Alabama, you mentioned that streak about Alabama being a seven point underdog or more. How about this number for you? That was the first time Alabama had been an underdog since 2015, 92 straight games is favorite. So that was what on the road at Georgia that year. I think they were an probably a good call. Yes. I think that was one of the seven pointers if I'm not mistaken. And they kicked their ass. Wasn't that a Georgia black Jersey game? They, no, no, no. That was like the Julio Jones game. Uh, that's was, right. That's right. So Bama played on the road at Georgia. I think they were an underdog on the road. And it was like a rainy day in Athens. And um, I think Alabama beat them by like 40. Like it was like never a game for like one second. I think that was the game. That was either in four, in 15 or 16, I think. So I remember watching it when I was in college. I think it was 15. Um, so that was the last time they were underdog. I mean, that makes sense. That's that is insane. Um, what do you think of the rest of the playoff and how everything shook out? It was really kind of – like I mentioned earlier, not that dramatic after the Oklahoma State deal. We now get Alabama against Cincinnati, Michigan State, or excuse me, Michigan against Georgia. I'm someone that's – I like college football for what it is. I have someone that's very much beat the drum of the lack of parity. I understand it, but is made, particularly with this four-team playoff, made things very, very boring. Uh, when it comes down to the sports ultimate prize and you get down to the games, the most important games of the year, it's the same programs every single year. Even though you have Alabama and Georgia in it, I don't think that could be, I think could, I don't think that could be further from the case this year because I find the Cincinnati storyline fascinating. The fact that a group of five school finally got in, in this four team deal that I didn't think would ever happen. And then what I really wanted to get to is, Jim Harbaugh in Michigan just quietly did this. There was no Harbaugh drama throughout the year. It was a very quiet workman-like team. I don't know how they match up against 
Georgia. I tend to uh, side with you in the sense that I think Georgia will handle them. But, man, Jim Harbaugh won the Big Ten and beat Ohio State and is in the college football playoff, and it seemed almost a certainty that that might not ever happen. Uh, what a What a job by him. No, yeah, I think it's a very interesting point. I brought it up for like a second in the last podcast, but I'm glad we can talk about it on how Michigan handled Jim Harbaugh compared to how everyone else yes. is handling their coaches these days, where they kind of got together and like, look, like we're not going to just we're not going to fire you, but we're going to we're going to change this contract up a little bit. You're going to make a little bit less money, but we really do believe in you, and we're going to kind of give this some time because you have not failed us. You've gone like nine nine wins, ten wins. You just haven't exactly gotten over the hump yet, but we're in no position to fire you because. Like who else are we going to get that's going to be truly a, a better fit and coach? And I think it was an awesome decision by them. And of course, the the results are a 2020 view, but I think that the process they went through up there is really a process that I think more programs should look at. Nebraska did it with Scott Frost. I mean, I know they were like three and seven this year, three and eight, but I think they lost like every game by one score. Like they, they could have been eight and three, truly. And it's like, man, like Scott Frost, like his whole UCF thing, like it wasn't just fake. Like they went undefeated and they kicked a lot of people's ass. Like this guy can coach. Why are we going to fire him? He wants to be here. And not everybody wants to be at Nebraska and not everybody wants to be at Michigan. So when you've got a guy that wants to be there, has proven he can win, there's no reason to just pull the plug immediately. And I kind of credit both of those places for – figuring out the way that they did it and it's working out for them big time. And that that's awesome. Um, I think you're, I could, I agree. Like it's, it's like they didn't take the bait because you've seen no. these other programs that have much more dysfunction that they get tired of plateauing at the nine, 10 win mark and not getting over the hump. And they make kind of reactionary decisions and change. And that really just kind of breeds more long-term dysfunction within the program. Um, and they like constantly changing just for the sake of changing, I guess would be the right way to put it is like that never really breeds better results. I couldn't agree more about the, uh, the hardball side of it because you're right. Like he didn't fail. He won a lot of football games. He never won the ones that quote unquote matter, but he got them to that stage. And I guess to the edge of that. And I think rehandling the contract and sticking with the guy that's getting you there and you're giving him more time to get over the hump is probably a much smarter strategy than continuing to pay buyouts and taking chances on guys because all this coaching carousel stuff has shown us none of this shit is a sure thing. We don't know anything about any how anyone's going to turn out. Joe Moorhead looked like a slam dunk hire. Dan Mullen looked like a great hire. And the two dudes they wanted in front of him were Chip Kelly and Scott Frost. And look at how that's gone. Right. I think your point about Nebraska is, is smart too because – Look, they were three and seven or whatever they were this year. If you actually watch them, you're like, this is not a bad football team. No. Like their schedule kind of stocked them losing early in the year to on week zero to Illinois really put them behind the eight ball from a results perspective, but they're improved. And that's a more extreme example of it. But I just think in a day and age where no one is doing the patient strategy, I think it's probably pro good to look into being different and having a little bit more patience. Because at the end of the day, there's 20-something programs that think they should have a seat at this four-person table, you know, every other year over the course of a decade. And that's just not realistic. And, you know, it worked out for Michigan. Like you mentioned, playing the results is something we love to do, and it's easy to point to that now. But I think if they had lost last night and won, like, and still had gone 10-2, and two, you know, you got over the Ohio State, um, I would still probably be singing the same tune. 
uh, that they made the right decision. So it's fascinating. And then the Cincinnati aspect of it, I don't know what their chances are against Alabama. I would guess Alabama probably beats them fairly handily. But the fact that they got in, it feels like they they are representing a hell of a lot more than just Cincinnati. See, it feels like they're representing a lot of group of five teams that had really good football teams and really good records over the last seven years that never got a shot. Yeah, I mean, you never say never. It's it's one game. Sure. And they're, Cincinnati, they're a good football team. It's weird because I think they were better last year. But they're still really good. Um, I think this committee was looking for literally any possibility to not put them in. So this idea that we're like championing, championing, championing the uh, committee for putting them in and like giving them their round of applause is total bullshit. Um, but I'm glad they're in because I think that's I a too. huge deal. I think it's important to for a lot of these programs to like you know, show they can actually have an opportunity to get in. If they do the right thing, schedule some really tough games in the beginning and then beat the shit out of everyone they play, you know, then you have an opportunity to at least be put in the conversation to be in. The cards fell how they fell, and now they're in and get a chance to win a national championship. That's awesome. Um, I'm all for it. Uh, I think this thing needs to be expanded because if you're a team, you know, shit, even Baylor, like – you could be like, oh, we got an argument that we could be in over Cincinnati. You know, Notre Dame, you know, they don't play in a conference championship game. If they had been in a conference championship game and won, you know, you'd be like, should we be in over Cincinnati? I know they lost to them, but still, um, there's it, it, the committee is incredibly lucky. I, the ends should never justify the means. And I think some of the, the shit they've pulled this year, saying Notre Dame would have a worse chance to get in because their coach left them and like crap like that, you know, just because it worked out for them doesn't mean that this thing is working. Um, but it's good to see Cincinnati in there. It's good to see Michigan in there. You know, Bama and Georgia have earned their spots in there. So I, it worked out, but it was, you know, one Iowa win over Michigan away from getting into some complete nonsense. It really um, was. One, one Oklahoma State win over Baylor uh, into some controversy. So there were a lot of things that definitely could have happened. Uh, to make it a shit show and you know it's weird how it always just works out for those guys in the committee so but it, it I think it's a real two really interesting semifinal games um, that should be a lot of fun don't you think this is the best version of the all the g5 teams I like I again it's hard to think back and remember some of those UCF teams but watching Cincinnati play no, football this, this team's team, much better than, than those UCF teams I agree I think this is the best version of it and I don't think they got in per se because the committee like you mentioned like don't give the committee their accolades it's just how it all yeah. fell I don't think yeah. they were smart enough to sit in there and be like no this team is much better than all these group five teams because honest to God like you mentioned had Oklahoma State won we're probably having some sort of, or God forbid, Iowa win. You're having a yelling match about why, you know, all these power five or these handful of power five programs, whether it's Oklahoma State, Michigan, whatever, is better than undefeated Cincinnati. Like it really just shook out perfectly. Uh, but I do think it's kind of fitting that they, this is the best version of it. I'm curious to see what it looks like. What do they look like? Because they're going up against the, you know, gold standard in the sport for the last decade and a half. Yeah, and I mean, I think the opening line is like something around like eleven or thirteen or something like that, which which makes sense. And um, I mean, I don't think Cincinnati is going to beat them, but they're definitely capable of putting them putting up a game. Um, I think it'll be very different than what we've seen from like these UCF teams and Houston's and Cincinnati's playing these BCS and and New Year's Six Bowls because you can say whatever you want, but the teams they played like could not give a shit whether they were there or not. 
Um, you see it every single year. I mean, Georgia twice, you know, against Texas in the Sugar Bowl and against Cincinnati um, in the Peach Bowl, whatever it was. Like, they didn't care if they were there. Auburn against UCF when they won the Peach Bowl, like, or UCF beating the Peach Bowl, they didn't care. They're getting to play Alabama in a semifinal game to go to the national championship. You know that they're going to have the best game plan, that they are 100% prepared. And seeing what a group of five team looks like, a good one going up against that kind of team will, will be very interesting and will either open up the committee's eyes into taking some of these teams seriously or completely shutting the door on ever putting another one of them in there again. So we'll see what happens, but uh, it's going to be definitely an interesting game from a uh, future of college football standpoint. You're right, because when this thing goes to 12, I think this game carries weight on what group of five teams or team could crack it when it becomes 12, because I do think it will get easier naturally with more spots when it goes to 12. But I think this game, and it's not fair, could go a long way into opening the committee's eyes about group of five teams, even into the future and how they'll be considered when they actually have a much more statistic or a statistically better chance at getting in this thing, when it does eventually go to eight or 12 or whatever the plan ends up being, because no one seems to know what the hell is going on actually, but there's going to be more seats at the table. And I think this game will go a long way in shaping perception and opinion about group of five schools getting a future seat at the table when there's more seats open. So I'm fascinated about that. One last thing, because we're going to get the crystal ball and then uh, soccer corner. The part, the thing you mentioned about a hardball and how Michigan handled it, I spent the last 10 minutes uh, searching Twitter, uh, trying to find this statistic. Brian Kelly went 113 and 40 at Notre Dame in his time. And over that same time span, LSU went 114 and 39. I don't think that's indicative of Brian Kelly. I don't think that's necessarily indicative of like LSU and the higher. I guess my point in that is LSU's gone through two coaches in that time, both of whom won national championships and kind of the, I guess each situation was different, but the impatience and like not being patient with either guy, I'm not advocating they should led to more peaks and valleys in the program where Michigan since Harbaugh has been there has not really had a valley. Like they've had disappointing ish seasons, but they haven't had a complete flame out. And I think that's what you, re- you get rewarded with is odds are when you're good, but not great. Being patient avoids the flame out. Some people may accept the flame out because they want the next guy to win a national title. But I just found that an interesting way to look at it in comparison. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I completely, completely agree. So let's look at this. The last thing before we get to uh, old soccer corner here, the fastest growing segment on American soil. Miami has a head football coach. His name is Manny Diaz. Miami is pursuing another football coach, and his name is Mario Cristobal. The Miami Herald reported on Sunday morning that he will be the next head coach and that they're, quote, I have the story up on the website, deep in negotiations with Cristobal, whatever the hell that means. This is unlike anything I can remember about this. I, If I can feel badly for a multimillionaire, I guess I would pick Manny Diaz. This is an absolute clown show that – might end up getting the guy that they want. Like this is the most dysfunctional way to get your number one candidate that I've ever seen. It's so embarrassing. It really is. It's such Bush league on one on the media side to start, because I think we were talking about how like Oregon, the Oregon media guys are breaking the, the Miami AD coaching search and the Miami media guys are, breaking all this stuff about Cristobal while the administration for Miami hasn't even fired the coach that's been recruiting for that program 
for the last week, it's such Bush League on so many different levels. It makes Chris Ball look like an asshole. It makes Miami administrators look like an asshole. It makes Diaz look like a – there's a lot of bad words you could say. It makes him look like just a, a toy in this whole thing, um, which is not – which is bullshit. You know, it's just not how these things should be handled. You know, I think it's so funny because I don't think Crystal Ball is that great of a coach, and I think when they hire him, they're going to realize that quickly. I think Miami is so far from competing – in any sort of relevance in college football. And I get they're putting in more money and they've got all these crypto billionaires that are willing to, to fund uh, a competitive program, but that's just like one part of it. You know, they have clearly so many people with so many voices that can't figure out what the hell they're doing. And you listen, you look at the mining people on Twitter and they're like, Oh, like this, all these shits like not true. Like it's not that big of a mess. Like we're Miami, like we're going to be good. And the reality is you're just a big market team. And just because you have a lot of people that follow your program and that care about your program doesn't mean that you're any good anymore. And I never really care about Miami, but watching this whole process, I hope they fail and I hope they continue to fail. Nothing to do with Kiffin, just in general, doing with what they've how they've handled this Diaz Cristobal thing. I hope they are a smeltering dumpster fire for all uh, eternity. Fuck them. <laughs> No, it's just not how you handle this thing. No, I, I could not agree more. It's you can't terrible. have a laugh because of how, like, just a circus it is. You know, uh, Dellinger and Brett McMurphy had reports out earlier in the week. It wasn't even a report. It's just them giving commentary on the situation. Like, I have had sources say that this is an absolute clown show. And I, I couldn't even imagine it being a clown show in this regard. So they're going to – I don't know if they've hired that AD yet. The Oregonian columnist, in all irony, this is the most confusing storyline of all time. The Oregonian columnist broke that the Clemson guy – the Clemson AD is headed to Miami. <coughs> that has been seemingly tempered a little bit, or at least it hasn't happened yet. I have no idea if that guy's going to be their AD, but it seemed like they were going to go AD football coach, but then they wanted Cristobal so badly that they're, they're like, to hell with it. We don't want the AD to make this hire. We're going to go try to get Cristobal. And by the way, if that doesn't work out, we'll just keep Diaz and then let the new AD actually make a hire. Like that seemed to be what they were weighing here. And right, it seems but what like do you real, tell Diaz? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that's a that's the, you talk about using him as like a pawn and all of this. It's just like he's almost like a sacrifice. It's just how he's going to get stabbed. Like he's either going to get replaced by Mario Cristobal, or because they don't want they didn't get Cristobal, they'll just hire the AD. I presume give him a 2022, and then barring him going 12 and 0, can him at the end of next year. It's it's awful, and it's you know talk about stability and dysfunction. I get some of it goes above the football program because I think this is an admin versus boosters thing, but man, when you don't have competent leadership, this is what happens. This is, this is horrendous. And we talk about the fans wanting loyalty and guys being all about the program. I think the reason Diaz has still been quiet on all this and still gone recruiting is because that's a guy that actually likes Miami. And like, I think he's doing that because he likes where he is. He likes his alma mater because if this were just someplace else, he was, any other like situation, I feel like I'd look at my boss and be like, to hell with this shit. I'm out of here on my own. Oh, even better, even better. Okay, so Ross Dellinger just tweeted. Oh, boy. You, you'll enjoy this. Mario Cristobal has a deadline of midday Monday to accept the Miami job, sources tell Sports Illustrated. If he declines, Manny Diaz will be retained as the head coach of Miami. Final decision on athletic director where Dan Radakovich is a top candidate will be resolved after the coaching situation is resolved. 
So that, I don't mean to not, I don't mean to like to like pat myself on the back here, but that what I just outlined that I thought was the case that seems to be exactly what's happening. Exactly correct. Yes, <laughs> which is so backwards on so many different levels because who the hell is hiring uh, Cristobal? Like who is actually doing it? That's the biggest question. Is it the crypto booster? I think that's it, it. I think that's them because that's a real thing. That's that's not something that just I heard Neil say it on the. Uh, on one of his podcasts saying like there's like new money in Miami. That's not just, that's like a real, absolutely hundred percent. He's correct with that. That's a very real thing in Miami right now is some of these guys are brand new, like, like $20 billion, like, like stupid, stupid money. And for some reason they care a whole lot about um, Miami football. And that's, what's running this thing. Clearly. To add if, I'm, if I'm Manny Diaz, I, I resign. Be like, no, nah, uh, yes. Nah get me out of here. I'm done. I'm not going to go coach and like have to deal with players and have to temper their expectations. I'm getting the hell out of there. It's, it's awful. And to add context to what you're talking about, that being a real thing, the report in the Miami Herald about what they were going to pay Cristobal is reportedly $8 million a year, which was an eye opening figure to me because, you know, you heard all this vague talk about Miami recommitting to the football program. I didn't necessarily know what that meant or where it's coming from, but their ability to pay a football coach and commitment to pay a football coach $8 million was actually like surprising to me. So that I think adds credence to what you're talking about. That is a real thing. But again, Manny Diaz, if you have any, it's, it's, it's bizarre to just, a, it's a bizarre position to be in as a human being and as a man, because yes, I agree. I would resign if you have any sort of like respect for yourself, but you're also losing a, you know, large paycheck. I don't know what he's paid. It's four or $5 million a year. It's a hell of a situation. He doesn't really deserve any of it. They won five of their last six games. I get that they're not good, but like on paper, like they're sort of kind of trending up. I just, it, it's unbelievable to me that this is happening the way that it's happened. I've never seen it play out like this. And it's, it's, it's I hate to do like the disgraceful thing and clutch pearls, but it sucks. Like this is, this is no way to treat people. And this is no way to conduct business. And I'm curious to see how this plays out because what do you do next year? If Cristobal says no, what the, what, what are you selling during the football season? You're just delaying the inevitable, right? Like why not? Like if the kids didn't want to go play, like if it wasn't for the players itself, what's the point of going and rolling the balls out and playing next year? Right. I, it, it's a, it's a total joke. If I'm Manny Diaz, get me the hell out. I bet, I bet making 2 million as the defensive coordinator for Brian Kelly uh, probably sounds nice, you know, just get, get me the hell out of here or go somewhere else because that is a total Bush league dumpster fire program. The way they've handled this whole thing is such a disrespect to him who, no, he has not done great there, but he has pretty much been very good every single step of his coaching career until being the head coach at Miami. And it, it what, what the hell? I don't know. It, it's just bad. He's 21 and 15 there and 16 and nine in ACC play. And I get that's not what Miami wants to be, but there's also some denial here, right? I get that they shouldn't be satisfied with that because I think they could be better than that. But there's some real delusion here that this guy is just being treated like this foregoing 21, 15, six and nine in three years, 16 and nine, excuse me. Like I, I understand that that's not great and where they want to be, but talk about patience. There's delusion and impatience in this. That's not who Miami is as a program anymore. It's just not. No, exactly. And he's had real issues at the quarterback position. They got De'Eric King. <clears throat> he's as overrated as they come, get, gets hurt. And then they just have this Van Dyke kid just come out of nowhere. He's been phenomenal these last five games. 
like they're clearly trending up. They have not been recruiting poorly except for this year because the Miami administration has bungled that one up. It's not Diaz's fault. It's Miami's fault for saying they're going to fire him and not fire him and hire Kiffin and Cristobal. Like, no wonder they're recruiting like crap this year. So it's a it's just a, such a Bush League program, and I, I, it's, I would want no part of that place. <laughs> so last thing before we get to Soccer Corner, if you want to put an Ole Miss tie into this, this was the job that was actually the realistic one that if Lane Kiffin departed Ole Miss this year, it would have been probably for this job because just because he doesn't have – he didn't have opportunity elsewhere, not real opportunity. He signs this extension and he waited to sign it. Um, and there's different things that I have heard about how long he waited and how real the actual offer was versus when pen was put to paper, but that's not completely relevant here. And I won't go com- like too, too much further into that, but he's like, I guess if there were a plan B, like if they hired Cristobal, or excuse me, if they whiffed on Cristobal, it was always said Kiffin was their second option. Do you think – I'll ask it from the Ole Miss side of this. Do you think Kiffin was like, I don't want part of this dysfunction, or do you think he was like, it doesn't sound like I'm going to get it? I'm just asking you to completely guess. Do you think he was like, eh, I'm not getting this gig, now I'll sign it, or do you think he saw the clown show and was like, eh, no thanks? Uh, I would I would probably lean more towards the I'm not getting this job. Let me sign this extension worth a lot of money that, that I would lean towards that direction. I think I probably agree with that as well. I just think the timing of it and all of this is interesting. Do you think that Ross Dellinger tweet, if Kiffin had not yet signed the extension, and put pen to paper, do you think that would still be the plan? Who the hell knows? It seems like a cartel is running this entire operation, but I just wonder, I'm just thinking out loud here, like how that would change things at all. Yeah, it would be difficult to tell. I don't think it would change too much because it seems pretty clear that they're, they're going to keep Diaz. Why they would do that, I have no idea, but I don't think it would have changed all that much. I'm not saying they'll never be good again, but this has been a slow death and decline of a once proud Miami football program. Don't you think this is the last bit of dirt on the grave of like Miami being elite? I mean, this is a joke. Yeah. I mean, even if they get crystal ball, I don't think it matters. (laughs) I don't, he'll recruit better there, but it will be no different than Oregon. They'll recruit well when the games are supposed to win, lose the games against teams of the pulse. Um, Now there's not many teams of the pulse in the ACC, so that'll be good for him. But I, that, that program I would consider, they're they're leaning real close to Nebraska territory, to Nebraska Tennessee territory, where it's always next year. I'll go ahead and put them in that graveyard. I'll just say it. I don't think it's happening again. Might happen once, but they're never becoming the U again. Um, it's it's also hilarious that the last two times that they've kind of tried to make power plays to become a relevant football program and like become a national power is one, a guy who has, uh, went to prison for a Ponzi scheme, and now it's a bunch of crypto dudes. So you could dub this the buying the dip hire. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Let's uh, let's big get dip. To, a big yeah. dip. Right, yeah. Buy the dip. Mario Cristobal. Uh, write the book. Let's see. We'll get to the fastest growing segment in American soil. Now it is soccer corner. I was making sure I had the premier league fixtures up. A lot of great matches this week. A lot going on in the English premier league. Soccer corner is growing like wildfire. I keep getting tagged in people's tweets. We have had requests for MLS coverage. Um, it's, it's just we brought soccer to America, and this next generation of soccer is coming, and we are the single-handedly responsible for promoting it and making soccer uh, a relevant sport in the United States. 15 games in this Premier League season. Man City a lot at the top. They're creating some separation. Liverpool is uh, – or excuse me, 11-2-2. Two, and two. Liverpool is 10-4-1. and one. 
it seems like the blue blood's at the top because it's Liverpool, Chester, or I was about to say Chesterfield. That's the name of a uh, deer camp I belonged to when I was a kid. My family belonged to Liverpool, Chelsea, Man City, Tottenham's fifth. And then you've got this West Ham club in between. What's been happening in the Premier League this week? Your team is in sixth. Yep. Um, so we'll start off with my team. So this was like a, a weird week where they had the mi- the midweek fixtures, their matches, or whatever you want to call them. And then they had games <clears throat> Saturday and Sunday. So it, it's in the winter, they kind of abbreviate the schedule to a lot of games um, and not a lot of time. So on, on Tuesday, United played Arsenal in an, a really crazy game, ended up winning. On that same day, the Brentford Bees lost to Tottenham, who has really started to play really well. It's crazy what happens when you bring in a new coach. <clears throat> and then this morning, United wins again. They've won 1-0. The first game with their new coach, uh, Rangnick, or whatever his name is, the uh, the Russian guy. Or I don't even know if he's Russian. I think he's German. He used to coach Leipzig. So we're trending up a little bit. Uh, I think we got a new management, new kind of style we're playing and uh, it looked good this morning you know it's a win's a win um so tottenham they've won two this week that's big for them they're they're firmly in contention for a, a champions league spot um city dominated and i think they're kind of slowly but not necessarily they're kind of showing what they should be which is definitely the best team um Chelsea is definitely up there as one of the best teams, but they lost to West Ham yesterday. West Ham has been as consistent as any team in the league this year. They are firmly where they should be. They have proven that. They're, I don't consider them a threat to win the whole thing, but they're, uh, they're absolutely a problem and that they're going to be in contention for a Champions League spot, a top four spot, or at least a, a fifth Europa League spot. So, the Blue Bloods and West Ham, they're not necessarily a Blue Blood, but they've become as close to one as you can get. They're kind of taking over this league right now, um, and that's usually how it ends up. But um, there's definitely some more competition from some of the other teams that are trying to get into that spot, but uh, not exactly there yet. So did and beyond that, so you're seeing some a couple clubs here, West Ham, uh, not a Blue Blood, as you mentioned, but kind of uh, on the up and up. Least Chester City or however the hell you say that that team that won the Premier League Lester. a couple of years ago like yeah Leicester uh t- like twenty two thousand to one it was like one of the I think it would have been the like biggest or was the biggest it's the biggest greatest game. upset in sports history yes it statistically Vegas wise it was like the greatest underdog cash of all time they're up in the first half of the league did they get new ownership after that happened like I like. I know they had a shit year that last year after. That's one of the examples I used about the sacking of managers. Didn't they like sack their guy like less than a year and a half after pulling yes. the greatest upset sports history? Yes. Do they get new ownership? How are they continuing to maintain relevant? Are they like the Tampa Bay Devil Rays of soccer where they just kind of do things differently and play between the margins and uh, are well run per se? Yeah, I mean, they're definitely well run. They have uh, they have a really good manager. I think Brendan Rodgers is their manager. Um, they haven't had a great start to this year, but they're kind of rounding into form a little bit. Uh, they've always been great, at least these past few years since they won, of really making smart, young, efficient signings, which is all you can do when you're a city with that kind of money, uh, a team with that kind of money. But they've also uh, influxed. I mean, they have built ridiculous facilities. I think they've got some Chinese ownership money. That's relatively new. That has that has created a 
a little bit more of a, a platform for them to keep competing in these in this league. Um, so they're going to be a team I think is going to be, have some real staying power. I don't know if they're ever going to be – I don't think they're going to be a top five team this year. I don't think they're going to be playing European soccer, but uh, they're definitely going to stay up, and they're always a tough out. They have some really young, solid uh, offensive players. They, they just give up a ton of goals, which is, has been their Achilles heel this year. That was the last thing I was going to ask. I love looking at goal differential because I don't know anything about uh, uh, football here. Uh, and I have to come up with some sort of take. Norwich City, they're in last place. They're on pace to get uh, relegated. Newcastle, I think, was actually – no, they weren't ever in the cellar, I don't think. I think Norwich City has uh, been in the cellar the entire time. Newcastle, 19th place now or whatever the hell it is, second to last. Norwich City has scored eight goals. They have played 15 games, and they have allowed 31. I get yeah. that there's bad teams, but, like, that has to be miserable to watch if your team is scoring a goal every other game. So you're getting one goal every 180 minutes. That doesn't seem like a great ratio. How in the world does someone watch that? Uh, you better be a real big fan of that team. Um, they're a, a classic yo-yo club. I know that's your new yeah, favorite Yeah, there term. we go. They, uh, they're up and down, up and down, um, similar with Burnley, who's an 18th, Watford, who's in 17th. You know, these are teams that really go up and down, up and down. The shocker that I'm looking at right now, Everton is in 16th place. They are inching towards that bottom three. That would be a pretty uh, – That's pretty a big, big club. That's a big club. That's a, that's a, a historic club. They're, they have a pretty good manager they just got. They might be firing him pretty soon, um, which we'll always love to see in the APL. Yes, so that's, that's, that's probably – that is more shocking than West Ham being fourth is Everton being 16th. That's, that's a real club with real good players, a lot of pride, a very historic. Um, that's a real bad for them. Something to keep an eye on. What's uh, is there Before we close, has there been any movement on U.S. national team? Where are we at with that World Cup qualifying? What's going on with that? So they have their next round of qualifying. So they are tied for first with Canada right now. Mexico lost to Canada in the snow game, which was wild. I had to watch the end of that. It was pretty cool to see that. Um, what was the sleeve ratio on that? I didn't, uh, I didn't know. Lots of sleeves. Okay. Lots of sleeves. Yeah. Soft. Especially for the Mexican players. Soft. Um, so they, they have their next round, I think in early January. Um, and they play, it's two home games. I think one's in Minneapolis and the other one is in Portland. Um, why we do that. I have no idea. I, I, I know why we do it. It's because, you know, only Americans will show up. Not, there will be no, South American or Central American fans will be in Minneapolis, but that seems a little bit too much towards the extreme. Uh, what you can look forward to is Champions League final games of the group stage will be on Tuesday and Wednesday. A lot of teams have already qualified. I know United has already qualified, um, but there's other teams in the Premier League. Liverpool's won their group. City won their group. Uh, and then Chelsea is pretty much in. So from a Premier League standpoint, everyone's towards the next round, but there are some big clubs that have to really win uh, or they're going to get their ass eliminated. So there's some awesome games on Tuesday and Wednesday. Does that become a tournament? I, so the Champions League and Premier League, do they end at the same time? So so Champions League, so it's, it's a group stage. They go through like weeks on, weeks off. And then uh, after the group stages, they will redraw. So they'll put all the teams into like a little, you know, like a lottery thing 
they'll redraw the names that will be playing against each other in the round of 16. So it'll be like, you know, this group's one will play this group's two, kind of like the World Cup after the group stage, but it's randomized. Okay. So then you play an aggregate, you play two games, home and away, aggregate score moves on. It's, it's a gonna, pretty cool deal. Yeah, I'm going to spend the next week trying to figure out all that math. This has been yeah. the fastest growing segment on American soil, growing like wildfire. I please continue to tag me in tweets. I don't understand. And then I'll, I'll start <laughs> researching the MLS uh, out, there, out there, see if we can get some. Uh, actually, do what I'm going to do, I'm going to go to the game where that kid, what's that kid's name that plays for us? It's a Dallas FC. They're in the playoffs now. I don't even know if they're still playing, but Pepe for Dallas FC. Next time they have regular season, I'm going to go to a game out here and I'm going to give my own scouting report. And then I'll just bounce my scouting report off you and we'll see uh, why he's good, uh, why I think he's good or bad player. This is uh, Vin Soccer Corner. I appreciate the time, dude, as always. This has been a fun football season. I've enjoyed our chats on Sunday. You're not going anywhere. We still got plenty of recruiting, bowl stuff. But uh, as we wrap up the season, I appreciate you carrying the pot on your back. And uh, this has been fun stuff. What a wild college football season, huh? It has been wild. It's been a pretty good one for an Ole Miss podcast, I would say. So Absolutely. Good for us. <laughs> um, catch, we'll catch you later, dude. I'm sure we'll do some uh, signing day stuff, and then we'll do a uh, – you know, Baylor preview or whatever as they get closer to the bowl game. But I appreciate my to- the time I'm in, and I will talk to you soon. Yeah, absolutely. And that's our show. Appreciate you guys tuning in as always. I've had a ton of fun doing the uh, Sunday recaps of Weldon, and uh, that was one of the uh, one of my favorites as well. We'll do some stuff uh, throughout the early signing period, uh, obviously around the bowl as it gets a little bit closer as Ole Miss prepares to play Baylor in the Sugar Bowl. So uh, we'll be hearing from Weldon fairly regularly over the next month. But uh, probably not next Sunday just because there's no football unless he wants to spend two hours on Army-Navy. But anyway, got a lot of stuff coming this week. I appreciate you guys being uh, such loyal listeners. Been cool to see you uh, uh, get tagged in whatever. I don't understand the Spotify rap thing per se, but uh, it's been cool to see people that are listening to the show. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Y'all have a great start to your week. We'll hire you on Wednesday.